Dana Utrada, and this is the Anti-Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. The Anti-Dystopians is hosted and produced by me to provide a space to have conversations about radical and critical approaches to technology. If you'd like to support the production of the Anti-Dystopians, you can subscribe to our email newsletter by following the links below. We also include links to articles, books, or other additional reading mentioned in our conversations, as well as alerts about upcoming episodes, so be sure to take a look. To stop the world from descending into dystopia, subscribe to the Anti-Dystopians wherever you get your podcasts. So hi, everybody. We're here today with Jennifer Cobb, who is a senior research associate in the computer science department here at Cambridge. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about technology, corporations, and regulation. So hi, Jennifer. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Lena. It's really great to be on the podcast. Um, So maybe we could just start, you know, a little bit with uh, about yourself, maybe about your background. How did you get into the tech space? um, And what do you think the legal approach to law adds? Or is how is it unique in terms of how you think about technology corporations? Yeah, so I think um, I I do work in the computer science department here at Cambridge, but my background is law. um, And I generally I sort of work on questions around law and regulation of, of digital technologies and the kind of the different kind of relationships and forms of political economy that kind of develop around them and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, so how did I get into tech? Well, when I was a teenager, I I taught myself to code because I was I I, I liked computers, so you know they were new and exciting. <laughs> I you know I was I, I suppose I, we got our first computer um, in the, in the house or the first internet connected computer in the house when I was eleven or twelve, um, which probably to people who have always grown up with computer science kind of um kind of wild but yeah I was 11 or 12 and it was just really cool it was this computer that could connect you to the whole world and, and you could do whatever you wanted um so I sort of learned to code um or taught myself to code because back then um the our computers in school had Visual Studio 6 which was like you know really early well not that early I mean like late 90s kind of like programming suite so you had like C++ and you had Visual Basic 6 which is much derided but was a good entry point um, and other things that sort of got me into it. Um, and then over the years, I kind of just kept up that interest and kept building random bits of software and, and different things that were useful and um, find the internet to be really useful and interesting and an exciting place because it still was an interesting and an exciting place back then. <laughs> it's not so much now. It's, it's a terrible place now. But back then, it was it was quite different um, before the big tech companies came along and sort of enclosed it all. Um, and I think then I, I, went and I couldn't decide whether to do computer science or law as a degree um, and I ended up doing law and um, kind of gravitated I went off and did a lot of human rights kind of stuff and international law kind of things and a lot of sort of public law kind of things um, but then gradually gravitated back towards tech kind of questions by the time I was doing my PhD I was looking at surveillance um, primarily and it was primarily state surveillance to do with like uh, the Snowden kind of things that came out and all of the stuff that came out with that was obviously like it's terrible these kind of the way that states surveilling the internet and from there it kind of then gravitated into this sort of more surveillance capitalism kind of stuff um and this is probably what 2014-15 so the same kind of time that Shushan Zuboff wrote a paper in 2000 
and 14 or 15 called Big Other, which is quite a good paper. Um, and her ideas were really good in a paper. They're, her book's fine, but like the paper was, <laughs> the paper was, was better. Um, so that was quite an interesting piece. And I kind of helped get me into, into a lot of the other kind of more uh, tech, more big tech kind of, kind of side of things. Um, did my PhD and then ended up here in Cambridge. So, um, yeah, it was always kind of that interest in tech was always there um, and a slight diversion into law. Then I kind of came back into tech kind of stuff, but like with law, obviously. And um, I don't have a very sort of typical lawyer's kind of approach to law. I, I tend to approach law from a really sort of critical perspective and using a lot of sort of sociological concepts and a lot of, I guess, like political, philosoph- political philosophical concepts and that kind of thing. Um, because like really actual law is, is quite boring um, but <laughs> the question of the role of law and things like technological development and the influence of law and in, in trying to in, in how the law the role the law has played in producing the the sort of tech industry and, and the, the the world that we have today is an interesting thing to me and um you know I, I think that if we want to be able to use law to try to address some of the problems we have around tech then we need to understand what part law has played in, in getting us to this place in the in, in the first place so that's kind of where my interest is. Yeah, so like your your PhD dissertation focused on the different ways in which uh, like the UK was or is becoming or is already a surveillance state. Um, and so I wonder, um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. And, you know, it obviously draws a lot on Shoshana Zubok's work, which you mentioned. And I wonder how you think her arguments hold hold up now a few years, you know, a few years later, um, a lot of critical scholarship has come out on on technology. Like, how, how do you think the ideas hold up? Um, and maybe, like, yeah, that interaction between the like technology, you know, the state surveillance and the corporate surveillance, mm-hmm. and how that interacts through the technology. Yeah, I think I think the UK is a surveillance state, and I think the UK has been a surveillance state for quite a while. Um, and by surveillance state, I mean really a state where there is the capacity, whether or not there is actual. Uh, tracking and recording of, of what you're doing all the time, say by the state and by companies, but where there's the capacity to do that kind of embedded everywhere throughout society. Um, whether it's the state uh, using its surveillance bars through something like GCHQ to find out what you're doing online, or whether it's a company like Google or Facebook or any of the other hundreds or even thousands of, of companies that are tracking everything you're doing, or whether it's you know political parties who are wanting to find out what you're doing, or whether it's, you know, I don't know, Tesco. <laughs> you want to track everything you're, you're buying, and, and Tesco were the first company in the UK to have the um, the the kind of shopping analytics that they have in the supermarket kind of analytics mm-hmm. using Clubcard, and that was a huge change um, in terms of that um, in in the UK anyway. Back in the early mid nineties, there's an interesting story about how Clubcard um, came about, but it's not interesting enough to get into. Um, <laughs> so, I think you know where we are now is kind of a situation where. No matter what you're doing in, in the UK, you're either going to be tracked and surveilled through your devices or tracked and surveilled through things like CCTV. The UK is probably the most watched country in the world uh, in terms of CCTV or one of the most watched countries in the world in terms of CCTV. You can barely move um, without being on camera. Um, so we live in a surveillance state um, where the capacity to track people is everywhere. Um, there's very little you can do in the UK, which isn't in some sense trackable in some way. Of course, if we sit in a, you know, Alina, you and I are sitting in this room, um, 
And I was about to say nobody's recording what we're saying, but literally oh, somebody, we are somebody, recording. Yeah, we're recording what we're saying, but <laughs> nobody else is recording what we're saying. But my phone is sitting beside me, and it knows that I'm in this room. And well, my phone doesn't know, but through my phone, people mm-hmm. know other companies and, and what have you know that I'm in this room. And um, you know, and it's the same for your phone, and, and probably on, on on both of our laptops, there are things that are probably mm-hmm. you know reporting back. So, although the specifics of our conversation aren't being tracked and, and sent back. Uh, all of the data about where we are and, and who we're with, that's what's being sent back. And that's much more useful um, to the companies uh, that want to do this and to the government and to the state as well than information about our conversation because it's much easier to spot the kind of patterns and correlations and what people are doing looking at that kind of metadata than it is looking at content. Um, and if you have those patterns and correlations, then you can predict things or in theory you can predict things and you can try to inter- intervene on people's behaviour and try to preempt people's behaviour. Um, and that was very much the argument put forward by Shoshana Zuboff in uh, her big other paper, was that the big, well, Facebook and Google primarily, the companies that she called surveillance capitalist companies, um, are using these data sets about, not about what we're saying, but about what we're doing um, and who we're doing things with. Um, and they were tracking that and they were putting that into data sets and then analysing those data sets. Try to predict what we're doing and, and preempt what we're doing and then direct that in a way that's beneficial to them. Um, and that is, that's broadly speaking true. That is what, how their business model works. Um, and I think to that extent, what Zuboff was saying about it is accurate and still accurate. Um, but at the same time, she wasn't the first person to say that. People like um, Mark Andreevich. Um, we're saying that back in the early 2010s and other people were saying this, you know, back in, in that kind of time period. So she gave it a catchy title, Surveillance Capitalism. She also wasn't the first person to use the term Surveillance Capitalism. Um, there was a whole bit of work done. I forget the name of the people who wrote it. There was a paper published probably the year before her first paper on Surveillance Capitalism about the kind of, about the way that Surveillance technology is being used, um, surveillance capitalist technology is being used in the state surveillance kind of practices um, and in sort of military surveillance kind of practices. Um, so she wasn't the first person to use the term surveillance capitalism and she wasn't the first person to identify the business model. Um, but she certainly was the one who captured the zeitgeist, I suppose, and got her name out there and that worked. And she came to Cambridge in February 2019 um, which wasn't that long after her book was published. It was only a few months after her book was published. Um, and she was a really interesting speaker. Um, she sat on a panel and it was, um, it, was a, it was a good evening, but there was very little that was new, I think, by that mm. point, because people have been talking about this for a decade or almost a decade um, at that point. And a lot of the sort of more critical appraisals of her work, I think, are on the money. Um, so somebody like Evgeny Morozov, so has a really good piece. I forget where he, where he wrote it, but he has a really good piece that kind of dismantles a lot of the argument that Zuboff makes that surveillance capitalism is some kind of new form of capitalism that is sort of singularly undesirable as opposed to other forms of capitalism, which are basically fine. She seems to think that the kind of like Taylorist kind of capitalism is kind of fine. She seems to think that even Apple's kind of business model is basically okay. There's no real problem with that. Um, but the real problem is with the tracking and the modification of behaviour because it um, is a problem for our sort of individual agency. It's a very individualistic critique mm-hmm. of these problems, um, which again is fine. I mean, there's nothing wrong with an individualistic critique of things. But if you're going to ignore 
the kind of structural questions and the more systemic problems of power and, and the, the political economic questions, then that is a problem, I think. And to a large extent, she does ignore those things. Um, she also, and this is something that John Naughton, who I know has been on the podcast before, has said, is that inside her, her book, which you could call a tome, it's like 500 pages or yeah. something obscene, there is a really good short book that's kind of struggling to get out. She needed a good <laughs> editor. This is John Naughton's view, and I, I, I very much agree with him. She needed a really good editor to cut about, about two-thirds of that book out and just say, look, this is your core argument. This is what you want to say. And it could have been, a much, I think, a much better book. Um, but that wouldn't have addressed the conceptual problems with the book, which is that it's quite limited on that on that critique of surveillance capitalism. Um, but her basic argument, I think, is is signed. It's just not enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so is it still relevant in 2022? Kind of, to some extent, but it's nowhere near enough to understand what's going on. Um, I think a lot of the focus on these privacy and, and data protection and individual agency kind of issues that have come up out of this behavioural advertising kind of thing um, have, to a large extent, distracted from deeper, I think, more important questions. Like, are the problems with surveillance capitalism real? Is, is the pri- are the privacy problems real? Are, are the data protection problems real? Yes, absolutely. Is the concern about individual agency real? Yes, absolutely. Uh, are there problems with discrimination and, and other problems with uh, behavioural advertising? Again, yes, absolutely. But fundamentally, what is the core problem um, with this stuff? And I think it's not so much that the tech companies or, or the big platforms or surveillance companies or whoever else you want to call them. It's not so much that they're taking all of our data and tracking us and trying to manipulate us. It's that they're using their platforms and these behavioural advertising systems to embed themselves deeply within society and, and make a whole lot of other kind of sectors of the economy and, and society dependent on them. And kind of by doing that, gave themselves a huge amount of structural power in society, which is that's to me much more concerning than these privacy and data protection and, and even discrimination issues which are bad and concerning and we need to do something about them we should just ban behavioral advertising that would address a lot of those issues um but the more systemic structural kind of questions i think are much more concerning for the long-term future of of democratic society mm-hmm. yeah you sort of preempted my next question you know there's a there's you know shoshana zuboff's it was one now very like as you said popular is like geisty like a paradigm or approach to the problem of technology mm-hmm. corporations. And then there's like, as you said, the privacy issue, the content moderation issue, um, uh, anti-monopoly, you know, you know, so many different ways, disinformation, so many different ways you can think about this. Um, so I wonder for you, especially like coming from a legal approach, because it seems like the, the most, at least in the US and UK and to some extent EU popular legal approach is the anti-monopoly one. So for you, do you think that there is do you think that there is a, a a right or a best way to think about these issues? Do you think all these paradigms like add something? Like there's just a lot of different ways to think about it, um, or, or do you think some are really you know off the mark? Like oof, that's that's actually harmful and not helping. Um, I think so. I think before I can answer your question in terms of what legal approaches are kind of more promising than others, I think we need to think about what has what role has law played in getting us here because if we want to have legal reform then it can't just be adding sort of an extra bit of law into what we have already because that might not work because the effect of law kind of comes about through the effect of a particular law comes about through its interaction with lots of other things that are going on in the world including other laws and and the effects of other laws um 
So if we want to talk about whether anti-monopoly kind of things or whether even like data protection reform or whether things like the Digital Services Act in the mm-hmm. EU um, or the Digital Markets Act in the EU or anything else is going to have the desired effect, we need to figure out where, how have we gone wrong with law that's kind of allowed these things to happen in the first place. Um, and if you, know, if you look at the, the business model of informational capitalism, I, I prefer these days the terminology of informational capitalism rather than surveillance capitalism. And that kind of comes from Julie Cohen's work. Um, she had this amazing book published in about 2019 called Between Truth and Power. And I'm going to get the second bit of the name wrong, but it's something like the legal construction of informational capitalism, something like that. And it's a really good book. I mean, it's it's quite a it's a dense book. It's a difficult book to read if you're not sort of deeply embedded in these kind of legal debates. But like, um, it's a, it's a diff- it can be a difficult book to read even if you are embedded <laughs> in these legal debates because there's so much in it. And you have to kind of, I don't want to say you have to wade through it because that sounds like a bad thing, but it, there's just so much material there. You have to, it forces you to think as you're going through it, which is I think is a very good thing. And it's a very interesting and stimulating work. And I, I would recommend reading it if, if people are interested in this kind of thing. But she makes the argument in that book that a lot of the current business model of informational capitalism can be found, or the space to allow it to happen and the mechanisms that support it and allow it to propagate can be found in law. Obviously, not all of them are legal, not all of the causes and not all of the ways that it manifests are legal issues, but law has played a significant role in, in producing it. Whether it's like in, uh, data protection kind of weaknesses or whether it's how companies weaponize intellectual property protections, or whether it's, or whether it's companies leveraging contract law to try to exclude um, oversight of their systems, or whatever it is that they're that they're doing. So yeah, Julie Cohen's work, this way that she talks about it is, I think, very interesting and very useful. Um, so something I've been I've been looking at lately is is what is the role of of data protection law, for example, in allowing in allowing behavioral advertising and that sort of kind of aspect of of um, informational capitalism to kind of operate, but also in reducing the ability of people to oversee what's happening on platforms, not just in behavioural advertising, but more generally. Um, and these are the kind of questions that are the kind of discussions that I think we need to be having. I, I I don't think we're even at the point where we can talk about what do we do in terms of law, because we haven't talked about enough of, of how law got us here. So like something else that's also a problem that we need to think of, and and it's it ties to this question of like how big could these platforms be. And what size can they be, and how how have they arrived at essentially being you know monopolistic kind of platforms? So, for example, I would argue that intermediary liability law, which is right, don't get me wrong, intermediary liability law is an exceptionally boring area of law. <laughs> um, so, in the US, you're looking at like Section two thirty of the Communications Decency Act, and in Europe, you're looking at um, the e-commerce directive, uh, articles sort of 12 to 15, those are kind of the ones um, that are the, the core intermediary liability law kind of provisions in the US and the EU. Um, I'm not, I'll not talk about the US because it's not really my area of, of, of expertise, but in, in Europe, what it basically says is that if you're running like um, like a platform like Facebook or Twitter or, or, or TikTok or, or whatever else, then you don't have any liability for content posted by the users of the platform. As long as if there's something illegal and you find out about that thing being illegal, you remove it. The word is expeditiously. Mm. So if you don't know uh, about things being illegal or if you have no control over the information that's illegal, then 
you're not liable. If you find out about it, you've got to get rid of it quickly and you're still not liable. Of course, if you if you know about it and you leave it up, then you can potentially be liable, but that's um, obviously the platforms try to avoid that. Um, but what this does is it means that you can have you can have a massive centralized platform like Facebook or like Twitter or like TikTok or like anything else, and you can say we're not liable for any of this content. So that allows that platform to scale past the point where otherwise a legal risk would be manageable. Or to put it another way, I suppose if you didn't have this kind of intermediary liability law, these platforms simply could not operate at that scale because the legal risk would be huge. They could not possibly know, you know, if they were going to be liable for everything posted on it or everything they hosted or whatever else, then they couldn't possibly know which of that is legal and illegal. And they couldn't possibly take steps to remove illegal content in the way that they would need to to minimise their legal liability. Which means that you couldn't have big centralised platforms. You simply would not be able to do it unless you were going to accept a huge amount of legal risk and quite probably quite quickly go to business. Um, so I would argue that intermediary liability protections afford that kind of scale and that kind of centralisation and that kind of monopolisation by these platforms. Not to say that it's only intermediary liability uh, protections that... Um, that that afford that, but it's a mm-hmm. key key part of what produces this. And it's not to say that we should be getting rid of intermediary liability protections, because I think in and of themselves they're not necessarily a bad thing. But we do need, I think, to understand the role of law in this, and then tailor our legal interventions in a way that can account for these kind of negative consequences or undesirable consequences in a way that's kind of much more um, much more holistic and coherent. Um, you know, I think if, if we hadn't had those kind of intermediary liability laws, we would have had, you could still have a system of much more decentralised platforms where, I mean, you could and you could do this now, of course, where everybody's essentially their profile operates on their phone, everyone has a phone now, or almost everyone has a phone now, but I suppose if you don't have a phone, you're unlikely to be using these platforms anyway. But everybody has a phone now that could potentially host a local client for a decentralised platform. So you would have had those kind of architectures, I think, develop and a very different approach to the platform um, kind of model. In fact, we might not have ever developed a platform model in the first place. It might have been something that was unrecognisable as a platform. That developed instead, it might have still been some form of social media, but in a very different kind of way. Um, So I think if we want to talk about whether things like the DSA or the DMA, or Digital Services Act or Digital Markets Act, um, or things like the uh, anti-monopoly kind of things in in the US, like the things the FTC is beginning to do, um, and I think it's fantastic that Lena Khan is, is the um, head of the FC, FTC now. But if we want to talk about how to go about, about addressing those things through law, then we need to understand how these other kind of legal frameworks have helped bring about the situation we have now. And that would help us, I think, target reform at which aspects of those are needed or which, what things do we need to do to kind of mitigate or like ameliorate the, the effects of those other laws in ways that can actually help bring about the kind of really deep real structural change that I think we need to you know platforms are platforms in and of themselves are not necessarily a problem you could argue that platforms uh, Julie Cohen calls platforms the core organizing logic of informational capitalism so you could argue that platforms can't really exist outside of informational capitalism um but this kind of idea of some kind of intermediated form of relationships between people is not impossible I think without informational capitalism um and I think we need the kind of structural change that can allow that to develop. Um, but I'm not sure that simply coming in is what we people are proposing now is the way to get there. So when you think about like the 
you know, you say like the, the intermediary liability law. When you think about like how law has gotten us to this point, do you think it's just an example of like, look, intermediate liability law was just there, you know, before the technology enabled these things and hasn't kept up? Do you think it's like deliberately, this law is like deliberately being used by either technology corporations, you know, financiers, government officials, whomever, because they have like a vested interest is it in it? Or is it just kind of like our institutions are really slow to move in terms of like amending certain laws and certain legal paradigms? Like what what, what kind of explains like the use of law in, in that in that sense? Um, so I, th- I think something that's important that I always try to emphasize is that technologies are social phenomenon. So like no technology develops outside of its societal context, whether it's like a knife and a fork and a spoon, like cutlery only became a thing in, in the West in like the 17th century um, because of changes in eating patterns, um, or whether it's like developments in like weaving technology in the late you know, 18th century that helped produce the Industrial Revolution, or whether it's a steam engine, or whether it's anything else, or whether it's a platform. They only develop in a social context, and part of that context is law. So part of the context that allows these kind of centralised, uh, sort of massive monopolistic platforms to develop is the legal context in which they develop. So if you look at the context, if you look at where, say, Section 230 came from, or if you look at where the e-commerce directive came from, at that time, there wasn't really the kind of big centralised platforms that we have now. Um Certainly there were people who were trying to have, we had message boards and we had things like, you know, Usenet and IRC and, and that kind of thing, but we had nothing like centralised platforms like we have now. And yes, Google existed. Excuse me, well, Google didn't really exist when Section 230 was passed, but Google existed by the time that the e-commerce directive was passed. But again, it wasn't this big, huge, dominant company that operates the way it operates. Um, so these laws, I think, opened the space um, for platforms to develop. Before Section 230, it wasn't clear which way things like intermediary liability protections would go. Um, and that kind of set the tone, I think, for intermediary liability laws worldwide. The European approach is, is a little bit different. Um, but the basic concept that you can shield people, shield platforms, and of course the word platform doesn't appear in any, any of these laws, but platforms are, on, on, the, on the European law, platforms are a category of information society service, which is what's comes underneath your uh, e-commerce directive so it's not so much the case that uh, you know the law was passed in a, in, a, in a different world and platforms just sort of developed and other laws fallen behind it's it's more the case that the law is a fundamental part of how we got platforms in the first place they they kind of they go hand in hand um, and yes of course we, you know you might, it might look like platforms have run away have run ahead of the law but they depend fundamentally on that law. So it's it's a symbiotic relationship, I think, between mm. technological development and, 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 and law that I think is often, it's kind of often overlooked when people say, yeah, technology's got really ahead of law because that's not how it works. Um, technology can't get ahead of law. Technology can't get ahead of society. It can't go beyond the control of society because it's it's of society. Um, and I think that's something that's often missed. I know, so somebody like Azim Azar, who was speaking in Cambridge last week, argues that like technology has 
or has is questions whether technology is running too far ahead of society for society to bring it under control, which I think is the wrong it's the wrong frame because like I say, technology is of society. It's always of society. If 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 you take a technology outside of its societal context, it becomes meaningless and, and, and useless. It's developed in a society, it's used in a society, it has effects in a society. We can't pretend that these are separate things. Um so we can't argue that technology runs ahead of law because law is fundamental to technology. Um, it's fundamental to how technologies develop. It's fundamental to how technologies propagate and are used in society. And it's fundamental to the effects that technologies have in society. Um, and I think something like intermediate liability law or like data protection law, or even the absence of certain laws, if we could say what we need is a law to do X or Y or, or Z, and actually we might have needed that for 10 or 15 years. But the lack of that law, the absence of that law, has allowed has allowed practices to develop and things to happen that are perhaps undesirable or harmful. Um, so even in that, you know, even if the context of, of no law, that's still kind of to some extent an effective law in the sense that it's because law has created a space in which things can develop by because laws don't just come about through some kind of um, natural process. People decide let's write a law that does this but doesn't do this. So that process of writing, of determining boundaries around what you want the law to do is as much a process of legislating or leaving space is as much a process of legislating as writing a law to do a particular thing. And I think that's, you know, that's again underappreciated too much in these kind of conversations that what people have chosen not to do with law is just as important as what they've chosen to do um, with law. And that needs, I think, more consideration. Um, but yeah, the general argument that things run ahead of law, I think, doesn't make any sense. So I think on this podcast, we talk a lot about like the American legal landscape. And I wonder if maybe for our listeners, you might talk a little bit about like the EU. I mean, the most famous legislation is obviously GDPR. But I wonder if you could say like, how how do you think the EU is, is thinking about regulating technology? Um, and, and, and I don't want to say like, is it effective? But like, how, how would you characterize um, both like the approaches that they're taking and like whether they are working as they're in- intended to work. Yeah, I think that's a great question because it's difficult to find it's difficult to find coherence in the European approach to reg- <laughs> regulating tech. That's maybe the polite way of putting it. So, like, if you take the last I don't know the last couple of years as an example, um, if you go back to say the passage of. GDPR in 2016 that came into force in 2018. Um, at the same time, they tried to pass or they wanted to pass an e-privacy regulation, which was to kind of update the law on like cookies and electronic communications and things like that. And that hasn't made it out of negotiations within the EU. So it's six years later, still not made it into into law. Um, they also then have things like the Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act, which in principle are intended to reduce the power of, of tech companies and ensure that people are safe online. Um, but they also then have the new proposals around scanning for child sexual abuse material, which is basically saying you need to, platforms potentially in future will need to scan everything everybody does uh, on their platform in case it's a known or, or new um, child sexual abuse material. So you have on one hand data protection laws that are all about you know protecting people from harmful processing of their data or harmful consequences of processing of their data. You also, by the way, have have um, case law in the European Court of Justice that kind of prohibits mass surveillance 
um, and consistent line of case law in, in the European Court of Justice that prohibits this kind of mass indiscriminate surveillance. And then you have um, a law saying that you need to scan everything people are doing for child sexual abuse material. It's, it's incoherent. But you also have this idea that we need to reduce the power of tech companies. Um, but then you have something like the Digital Services Act and, um, and other kind of laws which basically co-opt the tech companies into, into policing what people are doing and gives them a huge amount of discretion to do that. So on one hand, you want to reduce tech companies' power. On the other hand, you want to give them more power. It's Again, it's completely incoherent. There is no consistent, reliable, um, sensible approach in European um, Union policy or regulation towards tech at the minute. Um, even things like the Artificial Intelligence Act, which in principle is about bringing um, AI in quotation marks, I'm literally doing the quotation marks thing with my fingers, but AI in quotation marks within some kind of regulation to avoid the dangers of what they call high-risk AI systems. Um, you know, again, in principle, that kind of makes sense, but at the same time, the way they've structured the legislation doesn't reflect how a lot of AI, and I don't like the term AI, but a lot of AI is used now, which is kind of on a service provided by like big tech companies like whether Amazon or Microsoft or, or Google or even some smaller companies like IBM. Um, and it's funny to call IBM a smaller company, but <laughs> they are. Um, but, you know, so it doesn't actually reflect that. It kind of assumes to a large extent and in, in, in many cases that the people using a system are going to be the people who developed it and built it, which I think is not an accurate assumption. Um, not to mention that the whole concept of AI is, is deeply problematic in any way. And trying to distinguish certain things as AI and certain things as not AI is a minefield. And if you ask a computer scientist and a social scientist and a science and technology scholar and a legal scholar to give you each a definition of AI, you will get four different definitions of AI. And if you ask four different computer scientists to give you a definition of AI, you'll get four different definitions of AI. So it's a minefield. Um, but even what the EU has tried to do is kind of, again, it's kind of incoherent. Um, so it's, it, the, the question then becomes, well, why, is, why is it like this? Um, and I think it's because they, they feel like they want to do something. They feel like they want to regulate tech. But also I think it's not necessarily because they have any high-minded ideas of like, you know, protecting people or, or ensuring, you know, fair economies or, you know, human rights or anything like that. It's because all the tech companies are American and, and all the tech, you know, technology is built in, in China and, and in, in, in the Far East. Um, and Europe is kind of left out of this. And they're, I think they feel they need to do something to bring things under their control to some degree. Um, there's a lot of rhetoric in the European Commission around not getting left behind um, in technology, not falling behind you know, China or the, or, or, or the US. And it's in particular, it's China and the US that they're concerned about. And there's a lot of discussion about you know, European values and making sure technology is developed with European values, but that's not really the goal. It's, it's, it's all about this kind of broken idea of competing with America and competing with China on um, on, on tech, but doing it on, they use words like trust and assurance and human rights and yeah, European values. Um, I mean, if European values are mass surveillance of everybody's communications um, to try to find things that we don't like, and in fairness, we absolutely should be trying to stop, don't get me wrong, we should be trying to stop child sexual abuse material, absolutely, but should we be scanning everything everybody does? If, if that's a European value, that's questionable. 
Um, they also are talking about, I mean, if you want to talk about tech in the European Union, you, you can't talk about the way that tech is being used by the European Union um, in Frontex, which is Frontex is the European Union's border force, essentially. It's like the equivalent of ICE um, or the equivalent of the UK border force. And they place the European Union border using technology. They use, uh, you know, AI for facial recognition and lots of other things. Um, and they use that as part of a process that allows uh, migrants to drown in the Mediterranean. And the biggest graveyard in, in the world is the Mediterranean because the European Union prevents people from coming over. Um, and that's all part of these these horrific kind of processes that the European Union is actively involved in. in, in. So they want to talk about European values, but if letting migrants drown in the Mediterranean is a European value, then is that something we should be we should be going for? I don't think so. Um, so I, I'm very sceptical of all of the claims that the European Union makes about where they want to go with this stuff because none of it is based in a proper a proper belief in human rights and the fundamental dignity of people, um, and that's that for me is is a big big problem. I wonder, do you think that the UK's approach to this, I know they have their own like legislation going through, has in any way diverged post-Brexit? Yeah, I mean, we've got the UK has, in theory, got this wonderful new, they like to, well, everything's world-leading in the UK, and people, <laughs> if any of the listeners are not from the UK, what you have to understand is that the government says that everything is world-leading, and it's all brilliant, and isn't everything just fantastic, and aren't they the best government in the world? Um, but what they're actually proposing for like online regulation is what they've called the Online Safety Bill, which actually makes the Digital Services Act look sensible and, and realistic and, and, and well thought through. Um, it's an absolute disaster of, of a piece of legislation. It's, it's arguably the biggest assault on freedom of expression um, in, I don't know, post-war history. It's making, in principle, it's making the tech platforms, it's giving them a duty of care for what happens on the platform and it's requiring them to remove um sort of like harmful material and they haven't really defined harmful material um it's quite broad um and quite fuzzy um and their their plan is basically to leave it up to some kind of regulator to figure out what's harmful and and get the platforms to remove that which i mean the uk has no enshrined um, freedom of expression protections in the way the US has. We have things like um, the Human Rights Act and we have uh, other you know, international conventions that we're part of, like you know, the European Convention of Human Rights. And we used to have the EU Convention on Fundamental Rights, we, uh, EU Charter, sorry, on Fundamental Rights, which we no longer have. Um, but we don't have an enshrined First Amendment like the US has. Um, and even under our kind of like quite limited freedom of expression laws, it's not clear how the online safety, online safety bill could be reconciled with them or would be lawful or some actions by regulators could be lawful. Um, so even under our limited protections, it looks quite bad. Um, but if you were to try to do this in somewhere like the US or even in, in Europe, you'd be, you would struggle because it's not even... It's not to get platforms to remove things that are illegal, which you can, which you, you could, you can justify. You can say this is something that Parliament has decided to make illegal, and therefore platforms shouldn't allow it. It's getting them to remove things that are still legal to say, but some regulator has determined are somehow harmful. So that's a much, much bigger assault on freedom of expression than um, a lot of other uh, kind of things that you could do to address these problems. Um, and the government has had consultations on this. They've had. A whole process of, of producing different bills on this 
and they're going to ram it through Parliament. Um, basically, uh, in whatever form they can get it through, and it's going to come into force, and it's going to be a complete disaster. So that's the UK government's take on that. It, it's it's much worse than what the what the EU is proposing. Although the EU's uh, child sexual abuse material thing is much broader form of surveillance, probably than the, the online safety bill proposes. But the online safety bill is a much more significant interference with freedom of expression than anything the EU is doing. Um, they've also talked about moving away from the EU's uh, data protection laws. Um, so whenever the UK left the EU, they kind of inherited all of the EU's laws and kept them all in, 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 in domestic law. So what the government is doing is they're kind of going through and... and figuring out which of the European Union laws they want to keep and which ones they want to get rid of. And one of the ones they want to significantly reform, it seems, is data protection law. And what they want to do with data protection law is essentially gut it and make it a basically meaningless... I mean, data protection law is not brilliant at the minute. It's, it's, it's got a lot of problems. But they want to make it a basically meaningless kind of safeguard by, by massively reducing um, the rights that people have towards data and, and over, over different kinds of processing and... and that's going to be quite a big departure from what the EU is, is doing with data protection and I'm not sure how they're going to reconcile that because if you're a company operating in the European Union then you can only transfer personal data to other countries, other jurisdictions outside the European Union if you either have sort of legal clauses in place or legal guarantees in place in the contracts under which you're transferring that data or if that country offers what they call an adequate level of data protection that would allow that data to be transferred and still, and still protect people. Um, the UK is not going to have an adequate level of data protection after these data protection reforms. They arguably don't have an adequate data level of data protection now because of the extent of online surveillance by GCHQ and MI5 and MI6. But the European Commission has said, OK, we'll, we'll say that you have an adequate level of protection until the European Court of Justice says otherwise. And the European Court of Justice will probably say otherwise at some point, but it's even more likely to happen once the EU, once the UK passes this data protection law. That's going to completely change things, and it's it's going to be virtually impossible for the UK to have adequacy, um, which economically is a, is a disaster for the UK. Um, but the government doesn't care about that really. They just want to be seen to be moving away from the EU, and they want to be seen to cutting red tape, and they want to be seen to be you know, freeing up businesses to do whatever they want and this kind of thing. The actual broader consequences of this are kind of, they, they don't really care about that. So the UK is beginning to depart quite significantly from um, the EU on a lot of these things in ways that are going to be harmful to the UK. Um, but the government doesn't really care about that. They just want to be seen to be taking back control and whatever other uh, slogans they want to be able to say about this. So, um, yeah, well, good luck to them. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. So I wonder, you know, so there's a, I mean, it must have been a couple of weeks ago at this point, a uh, big kind of article about Facebook in terms of like, I forget the headlines, and they're like, Facebook doesn't know where all its data does. And it basically, people were saying, kind of amounted to Facebook admitting that it could not comply with GDPR. So I wonder, uh, but both like both in the UK and in the EU, I mean, it's talked a lot about in the US where like the S, you know, FPTTC will give Facebook a $5 billion fine. It's a tiny little slap on the wrist. But I wonder, do you, so do you think that institutions like the, the EU and like, again, to some extent, the UK are able to regulate 
American corporations, particularly American corporations that are just so big and monopolistic that like fines don't really, they, you know, don't really seem to affect or dissuade them in, in a certain way? Uh, for the EU, yes. I think the EU can regulate these companies and has, has regulated them with some degree of success. Um, and I don't want to overstate the extent to which the EU has been successful with this because it's really not very impressive at all. Um, it's, it's really, it's very limited. Um, the UK, I think, would struggle a lot more because the UK is now a much smaller market. Um, the EU is a market of 450 million people for tech companies. That's, that's, it, that's great. I, I think the EU is still, by GDP, the single market is still the biggest, would still be the biggest economy in the world, bigger than the US, bigger than China, um, you know, if, if you take it as one mm. economy. Um, which of course it's not, but it gives you an idea of the scale of, of what business opportunity there is in, in, in the EU and what kind of size of a market we're talking about. Um, so for the, so for the EU, they have a huge amount of influence and market uh, sort of market power if they if they if they exercise it the right way. Um, whereas the UK is now a small 60 million, 60 million sorry people uh, backorder country that why would any big tech company care too much about? Um, it's one of the great ironies of Brexit is that it's all about. In, well, it's not about this at all, but they say it's about this. It's about reasserting the UK on the world stage and all this, and actually it's made the UK relevant on the world stage. Um, but I think the EU's problem is not so much that it can't regulate these companies. It's that until now and until these more recent kind of laws that I talked about, there hasn't been a serious and sustained, a sustained attempt to regulate these companies. Um, and that's, that's kind of where the EU's gone wrong. It's not so much that they don't have the power to do it or don't have the capacity to do it. It's that they haven't really tried. Um, and the reasons they haven't really tried are, are largely kind of ideological and, and tied to beliefs in sort of non-intervention in, in, in markets and beliefs in trying to manage risks and, and these kind of things, rather than in, you know, the idea that we should be properly intervening to, to achieve certain goals for the sort of greater good. Um, and I think what we're going to find with, with, with European regulation, even the ones that I've said are, are kind of coherent, is that they will make a difference. Um, whether it's going to be a positive difference or, or, or not is, is still up for debate, but it will make a difference. Companies will change how they operate um, because they want access to the European market. Um, and if they don't, then they'll lose that access or they'll have significant fines. That could be, I mean, we're talking like, you know, potentially you know, 4 to 10%, depending on the different laws that we're talking about, of, of their turnover, not even of profit, but of, of turnover. So that's revenue. Um, and if you find Google, 10% of revenue, that's a huge amount of money. Um, so they can do it. Whether or not whether or not these laws are the right way to do it, we will find out. I don't think necessarily that they are. But certainly it's not the case that only America has the influence over these companies to regulate them. Um, other jurisdictions can. China, if China admitted these companies to their sort of to their markets, um, then they would have the market power to regulate them. And, and certainly, other big economies probably do. The UK is probably too irrelevant now um, to make much of a difference. But like, they're seemingly going to give it a go anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> we'll see what happens with that. So you think it's market power that's the determining factor? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I mean, realistically, if you're a small country, why would Facebook care what what, mm. what your laws say, or why would Google care what your laws say? Um, whereas if you're a, a you know if you're a big economy like like the EU, they have a real incentive to to um, to 
to do what your laws within reason because obviously every con- every company was, is going to try to get the best outcome they can from from the laws and they're going to try to get um they're going to try to do the minimal compliance that they can get away with so facebook and google are experts at this they're kind of like minimally complying with the law to the extent that they're not going to get like massively in trouble um so that's what we'll that's what we'll get from them um and that's what we can kind of expect from them and that's like it's it's progress like <laughs> you know what i mean it's it's progress yeah if we've got laws that they can minimally minimally comply with that are more effective then that's some kind of progress and for now that's the best we can hope for because although there is appetite in the eu for this kind of a more significant intervention into these things there's not appetite for the actual kind of intervention that would make a real difference so we've got a way to go yeah but yeah i think the market power of, of the eu can make a big difference so I wonder then, I mean, one of your papers, and, and we've talked a little bit about, about this in the podcast, is the ways in which regulation can empower the platform. So, like, I, I love your paper on content moderation. Or like, well, if you make Facebook responsible for it, what you're basically doing is handing Facebook a bunch of power to moderate content. So I wonder then, thinking, uh, like, more prescriptively to the, the future, I mean, you t- kind of talked a little bit about this in terms of, like, architecture of of the internet, but like what changes would you like to see both like technological architecture and, and regulation that you, you think would actually have like beneficial positive effects? Yeah, I think, I mean, in an ideal world, we probably would have just shut down Facebook five years ago. Um, in an ideal world, we would shut down Facebook today. Um, but I think realistically, that's not going to happen. Um, so I think what we need is first of all, to recognize that a lot of the time by requiring companies to do things and particularly by requiring companies to do things in ways that give them a huge amount of discretion we are further empowering them even though they're already by nature of the position they hold in society they're already very powerful so something that i think we need to understand is that if you have a platform and you people become dependent on that platform in some way then you have a huge amount of power to shape their relations with each other because platforms aren't just you interacting with a company it's you interacting with other people through that company um so that intermediation function that they perform is exceptionally important in society now but it also gives them a huge amount of power and if we say to facebook that you know you need to remove whatever content on this platform but we'll more or less leave it up to you to decide how you go about doing that then you're massively you're 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 leveraging that part but you're also exacerbating and amplifying that part so I think the question we need to have or the discussion we need to have is who actually has who actually holds that intermediation power, who actually is the intermediary who's who's in charge of of the platforms that we run today and how do these platforms work and how do they operate so for me we need to think about the ownership of platforms and I think we need to move to a model of, of real sort of social ownership of platforms whether that's public ownership or whether it's kind of other forms of like you know uh, cooperative ownership or whether it's like mutual ownership or whether it's other forms of kind of democratic and social ownership of platforms that's what we need to move to because ultimately if you own and control the platform architecture if you own the the architecture that performs that allows you to perform that intermediary function then you have a huge amount of power and that part should be democratically and socially owned um the next question then is okay well how do you govern those platforms how do you decide what rules apply on those platforms? How do you allow those platforms to, to, to operate in terms of 
what they allow to stay up and what they don't allow to stay up in terms of what users they allow to be part of the platforms and what users they don't allow to be part of the platforms. Well, again, I think we need democratic mechanisms for that. Um, you know, as these platforms become more significant in society and as the, the intermediary function that they perform becomes more significant in society, then is it acceptable that, say, you know, a platform like Twitter can ban high-profile politician from it when those platforms are important for political discussion and, and debate and like Twitter is quite a small platform in terms of users but it's got an outsized influence on politics and, and, and journalism and, and, and public affairs so is it, it can a private company should a private company be able to make those decisions and I, I would argue probably that's a power that those companies shouldn't have and actually part of making platforms socially owned is we need to then develop democratic mechanisms for governing those platforms not just in terms of the regulatory frameworks that we put in place kind of around platforms but also in terms of the governance mechanisms that we put in place on platforms and um, so that decisions about you know what kind of rules those platforms have what kind of accountability processes those platforms have how those rules are applied and, and how those rules are interpreted and who decides then in specific cases, how those platforms, how those rules are applied, those kind of things should all be decided democratically. Because in any other sphere of society, uh, of democratic society, anyway, where that kind of level of power is being exercised, we either make those decisions democratically, or we democratically choose people to make those decisions for us, um, or we empower people democratically to, to oversee people who are making those decisions for us. Um, and this private unaccountable power is kind of unacceptable, I think, in, in democratic society. So as well as that ownership question, we have then the governance question, and both of those need to be social and democratic. And then we have questions about, well, how do we allow these platforms to function? Like, do we allow things like recommender systems to be used in the way that they're currently used, which um, greatly kind of amplify uh, or can potentially greatly amplify potentially very problematic and very harmful content like platforms don't do this by themselves i'm sorry recommender systems don't do this by themselves of course these issues have their problems deep and like long-running deep-seated socioeconomic problems political problems structural issues but they do play a role in in amplifying and exacerbating these problems so we need to have discussions about whether we allow these things to operate the way they operate when it's all primed for engagement and whether actually we want to be thinking about different ways of structuring these platforms and, and, and ordering these platforms. Um, so that's kind of, that's a kind of, I think, a, 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 a regulatory question as well. Um, and I also think we need to have a broader question about the structure of the platform ecosystem. Do we want all of the platforms being kind of like siloed? Being, because part of the problem I think we have is scale. If you have these platforms operating at a scale that's kind of unmanageable, then that's going to be an issue because then it makes it even if we talk about like you know even if we talk about the ownership issue and the governance issue and then the question of how these platforms actually operate you still got this scale problem that it makes it very difficult to kind of manage them at, at that level and one of the reasons that platforms scale and one of the reasons that platforms centralize is that uh, you have network effects you can't communicate across platforms so if you want to be able to talk to people or see posts by a certain person or, or communicate with certain people you need to be on the same platform as them so if we can have platforms that can interoperate that is to say where they can talk across each other then you kind of help reduce the, the power of those network effects and kind of help reduce that tendency towards centralization and that tendency towards scale 
Um, and of course, that itself raises a whole lot of questions of, you know, well, how do we ensure like privacy and, and, and that kind of thing across platforms? And how do we how do you moderate across platforms? And none of those are easy questions. But I think it's something that we need to be thinking about because otherwise we're going to have the re-centralisation of these platforms. And I think that's kind of not really helpful. Um, and I think with all of these kind of things and other changes, like don't get me wrong, what I'm suggesting isn't going to solve all of the problems here. Um, but with these kind of interventions and these kind of new approaches to platforms, you can begin to dismantle the platforms that we have now and, and rebuild things along a different line that hopefully wouldn't have the same issues with the kind of very unaccountable private power and the harmful consequences of that that we that we see in society now. Um, and if we do that, then maybe we can we can begin to address some of these some of these issues in a really systematic, structural way that um, empowers people empower societies and communities rather than empowering um the the tech companies that, that run these things and and that seems to me to be a much better way of doing things but there's little to no appetite for doing any of that in in any kind of regulatory agency or in any kind of legislature anywhere that i know of um so i think for now we're kind of stuck with what we have which is a shame but you know we can push for change we can make the case for change and i think that's something that if anybody cares about about the part of the platforms have in society then I think you know we need to be pushing for, for those kind of changes. Mm-hmm.